Uh, Forge family, this, uh, this presentation today is not exactly seasonal. It's one of the dark sections of Scripture. And, uh, but I, I chose to stay in Daniel, so uh, hang with it. There's, there's good things at the end, okay? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonian Empire, ruled from 605 to 562 B.C., um, some 11 years or so prior to his death, uh, he had another disturbing dream. He, he was awakened in the night. He, he did, it just rattled his cage. And uh, he ordered his court magicians and conjurers, Chal- Chal- Chaldeans and, and diviners, to, to assemble and hear the dream so that they could interpret it. And they all rushed in, and they, didn't, they couldn't, nah, nothing. They, they had nothing to offer him. So he, he, they sent for Daniel, who was head of all those, you know, this conjuring crowd. And when Daniel arrived, on hearing the dream recited back to him by the king, uh, he was stunned and he was appalled. He stood for an hour. He just, it just froze him up, locked him up. In front of the king said, don't be afraid of the, of the dream. So Daniel proceeded to interpret the dream to him. And what the king had seen was this small plant that began to grow and grew and grew and grew and grew until finally it became a massive tree that pierced the sky and had foliage in which animals and, uh, lived in and underneath and birds lived in, and it fed all those animals and birds. And then this watcher angel burst through the heavens and began shouting that that tree was to be cut down to a stump, all the foliage to be removed, and all the wild animals and birds were to be driven away. And then there's this shift from the tree to the he, and the angel is saying that there's going to be someone who's going to lose his mind, and become as an ox, if you will, eating grass, living under the sky, being drenched by the rain and the dew, and whose nails would become like that of a predatory bird. Daniel's interpretation, given from, if you will, the holy gods, okay, we would say the Trinity, okay, El Elyon, multiple, multiple personalities, common nature, okay? And they indwelled him, Okay, and he, what he said was that the tree was an image of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was to be reduced to animal-level life. He would lose his mind. The stump, bound by the bands of bronze and iron, was a promise that if the king lifted his eyes to honor the Lord, of God, the Lord God, his mind and empire would be restored. Seven years of living wild ended when Nebuchadnezzar did lift his eyes to heaven and acknowledged that God ruled over the affairs of all mankind. <clears throat> now, we mentioned those two bands of, of, of metal on the stump, hearkening back to the bronze of the Greek Empire and the iron of the Roman Empire. The majority of those lands that were ruled by those empires today are peopled by Muslims. It's those scholars that hold that those bands point to the rise of Babylon the Great, in the book of, of Revelation, and um, you know, they, they uh, speculate, and it, may be, it is biblical speculation, but they speculate that it may be out of those lands will come the, uh, the presence and the influence of the Antichrist that's mentioned in, in um, the epistles of John. Let's pray. Holy God, Holy Trinity, We're learning that you lay out puzzling prophecies that point into our future. In our case, 
they've come to us after 20, over 2,500 years. You alone know the date and the time of the return of Jesus to gather up the church, to war, to judge, and to reign on earth. Lord, we want to be mindful and ready for that day of your return. We want to be refreshed with the mind of Christ, and we want to bow before you, O God of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 5 of the book of Daniel is dated 23 years after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. So we're moving through Babylonian history. Daniel had served Amel, Marduk. Uh, he, was, he was Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he had stepped in for those seven years while his father was eating grass. Okay? <clears throat> but then and when Nebuchadnezzar died, he ascended to the throne, and he had two years. <clears throat> and um, uh, he, uh, he was assassinated <laughs> by his brother-in-law, Neriglisar, who lived and reigned for four years. His son, Labashi Marduk, ruled for nine months and was killed by a coup that put Nabonidus on the throne in 556 BC. <clears throat> and I, you know, this is all, you, know, you can find this, you go look at ancient history, there it is. Uh, now, Neb- Nabonidus uh, was not related to royal blood. He was thought to have married a widowed daughter of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who had a son, and he, he adopted that son as his own. That boy's name was Belshazzar. Uh, now, there's three sets of records um, that are outside of Scripture, but they bear on this, this character, Nabonidus. Um, he, he had bad health. He had terrible health. And uh, he chose to live in North Arabia, out, you know, we would say maybe south of Kuwait, out, you know, out in, the, in the northern Arabian desert, still part of the Babylonian Empire, mind you, but at some great distance away from Babylon because it was a healthier climate for him. Uh, second, the second thing that shows up is that Nabonidus was entranced by the moon goddess, Sin. And had he stayed in Babylon, he would have run afoul of the, if you will, the union of priests for Marduk. And at that point, Marduk was the, the pinnacle of the pantheon of Babylonian gods. And that probably would have resulted in a religious war of sorts. So he went to Tema in northern Arabia and built a huge temple complex to the moon goddess of that city. And thirdly, Greek historians, uh, they wrote about 100 years, 100 years plus, after the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. And they say that the son of Nabonidus, Belshazzar, led the coup that killed and removed Labashi Marduk, and as at Belshazzar's urging, placed Nabonidus on the throne, believing, he believed that Nabonidus had such bad health that he was going down pretty soon and he was sort of getting set to step into the king's shoes. It's not until Daniel chapter 5 that we're introduced to Belshazzar in biblical history. It's in 539 B.C. And he'd been a regent, uh, co-regent, excuse me, for nearly two decades. His dad outlived all expectations. You know, he'd been there for 20 years, but 
all the historians speak of Belshazzar as the king in that period. At the time of this account, Daniel was nearly 80 years old, and many, uh, and he, he may have he may be, have become uh, emerit- had emeritus status. He's semi-retired. He still had the, the category, you know, the, the title of uh, the precept over all the magicians and uh, astrologers, etc., in the court. But you know, he, he was a el- he was an elderly man. <clears throat> so. Uh, Let's begin with chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. In that, it recounts that Belshazzar had laid out a huge banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And we kind of go, that's that's a lot of banquet right there. But um, Alexander the Great threw a a feast for 10,000 at a wedding. So it was not abnormal for some of these ancient kings to throw big parties. Um, in uh, 1899, there were a series of archaeological digs of one of Babylon's palace ruins. There are three, three major palaces in, inside the, the walls, but in, they, so they picked one. And um, they discovered that when they dug down and they found the, the footings for this, this palace, the, the footings ran to 40 uh, excuse me, 450,000 square feet. That's a lot of palace. Okay? And then they kept motoring around and digging, and they found this one room that had a raised platform that looked like maybe that it was a throne room, and it, it ran to, to 8,400 square feet, 8,400 square feet. And that, that room may have been the, the room that this banquet was held in because it would it would have held a thousand people, and and a throne set up. So um, <clears throat> uh, what differs here of this particular feast that was laid out? Uh, King Belshazzar brings his entire harem, all the wives, all the concubines, and they're on display. And also, he does not separate himself from the crowd by a curtain, which was traditionally done. But apparently, he openly displayed himself as well, and all his regalia and his, you know, etc. He wanted his nobles to see it all. Now, uh, why would the king host such a vast party? So, just days before, history tells us that his father, Nabonidus, had been leading the Babylonian army and they had gone toe-to-toe, face-to-face, shield wall, whatever you want to call it. You know, uh, they, they, two massive forces met head-on. The other force facing the Babylonian army was a coalition army of Medes and Persians led by Cyrus. And the Babylonian army lost big time. It was a crushing blow, and Nebuchadnezzar fled to the south. He was later run down, captured, and sent into exile. But that left the way entirely open for those two, those two armies, the Medes and the Persians, to come camp around Babylon. Uh, if you recall, Babylon had a 17-mile-long wall that ran around the city. 
was 40 feet high and 25 feet across the top, and no army of that day could have broached those walls. You roll it forward, 500 years, 400 years, and the Romans figured out how to do that. But uh, at that time, it was impregnable. Also, um, Babylon expected a siege, and so they'd laid in 20 years' worth of foodstuffs and supplies. They, they were just going to hunker down and thumb their nose at the, at the crowd. <clears throat> so once Belshazzar, and his name means um, Bel, protect the king. So he's, he's named after one of the high, the high gods in the, in the pantheon, one of the idols. Once he had tasted the wine, the text says, he ordered that the gold and silver vessels, or goblets, if you will, that had been used in Solomon's temple as part of the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem, yeah, when that, when that temple was taken and Jerusalem fell, Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, picked up all those gold and silver, silver implements, hauled them back to Babylon, to Babylon, and put them in the treasury of one of the, his chief god, uh, you know, chief idols. Okay, so what Belshazzar does, he orders those goblets to be brought into the, into the, into, in for his nobles, and they started pouring the wine and filling up the glass, and then they had toast after toast, after toast of, um, of, of praise to the Babylonian gods, which were described by Daniel as the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. To Daniel, they were things. They had no living sense about them at all. They were just material stuff, not spiritual stuff. <clears throat> now, uh, wine drinking of, in this of this category, it really was, a, it was an orgy, uh, typically happened after the meal in some of these, you know, eastern, near eastern things. And so they had their meal, and then they started to just get drunk. <clears throat> and in the middle of this thing comes verses 5 and 6. An alarming turning point happens in the feast. The text says, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Then the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints were slack, and his knees began knocking together. One scholar holds that if indeed those goblets had been brought in from the treasury and passed around filled up with wine, it was likely then that the gold lampstands that Solomon had ordered, crafted for his temple to light the holy place. And there were 10 of them, 10 menorah, gold menorah. Those were brought in and lit this palace orgy. And by the light of one of those lampstands, suddenly was revealed this disembodied human hand writing on the white gypsum-coated palace wall. Belshazzar was arrested. He was, he was frozen. He was terrified. The whole feast went silent. The orgy stopped. Everyone saw the hand and the writing on the wall. And on the wall were four Aramaic words that were read to be read right to left, just like Hebrew. You start on the right, you go left. Same thing's true for Japanese, I think. Okay? They're, they're all consonants, no vowels, and there was no spacing between them. They just bunched all the letters together, and you had to figure out 
what vowels fit where, and then divide those words into, divide it up into words. Okay? And so you get 17 letters there. On top of that, the hand that was doing the writing, it, it must have been so huge that all 1,000 nobles spread out in this huge space, this banquet hall, could see it clearly. At the height of Belshazzar's blasphemy, by, by using God's implements of worship from his temple, to challenge Yahweh with drunkenness and immorality, God responded. Belshazzar was terrified, almost unable to stand. And with that level of panic can come the loss of continence. Terror and shame fell on the king. Verse 7 to 9 says uh, that you could hear the scream of Belshazzar to get me my magicians and my Chaldeans and my diviners. Get them in here so they can interpret this. And... Uh, so they run in, and they're staring at this thing. And so the king, the king uses the carrot first. He says, anyone who can read this and interpret it for me, I will give him a purple robe. That's royalty. Only royalty wore purple. I will give him a gold, solid gold chain, which also spoke of great authority. And thirdly, it says, you will receive the position as number three ruler in the empire could be called a triumvir or a thirdling, but the point being, uh, if you could in, in, if you could read it and you could interpret it, that, there was a vast incentive right there for you. You would become royalty. That was what was on offer. So this conjuring crowd, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the diviners, they stood there and they stammered and they failed to even read. This is, this is Aramaic, mind you, okay? This is, the, this is a lingua, lingua franca. They couldn't do it. They couldn't put, the, they couldn't put it together, what was, being, what was up on the wall. Belshazzar's terror spread even wider, and his nobles were just perplexed. They're just shaking. Verse 10 has an uninvited guest rush into the banquet hall. That was the queen. Now, we know it wasn't Belshazzar's wife, the queen, because... She was already in the room. He'd invited all his wives and his concubines in. And it, it probably was not the queen of the wife of Nabonidus, because if he was going to war against the Medes and the Persians, he was going to leave her in Arabia. So it is likely that this queen mother here was the elderly widow of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And she rushes in. She's got... She's got authority, and she can get into that presence of the king without an invitation and without being, you know, having to be invited in, etc. So she gets right up in his face, and she says to him, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face go be pale. There's a man in your kingdom to whom is a spirit of the, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father... Illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, 
whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. So the queen mother remembered the mighty display that Daniel had put on over and over and over for many years. Let's call it 55 years, okay? Approximately, all right? Solving knotty problems, interpreting dreams, and unraveling mysteries. So while the queen mother described Daniel as having a, a spirit of the holy gods within him, Belshazzar just describes Daniel's successes as having come from the gods. He can, this man is so out there, he can't even name the word holy. Can't do it. <clears throat> and you'll notice before that the, the queen mother referred to Nebuchadnezzar as father because uh, Aramaic and Chaldean don't have any words for grandfather. You might be able to conjure up something called forefather, but they just simply called, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was the father of Belshazzar, even though there's a generation and years and years between them. The king offers the same purple robes, golden necklace, and third level of ruling power in the empire to Daniel. Verse 17 has Daniel's response. Daniel basically says, keep it. Don't want it. Keep your rewards for yourself. Nevertheless, Daniel said he would read the writing on the wall and interpret it for the king. Then Daniel launches into a detailed account of how God, Most High, had granted Nebuchadnezzar sovereign rule over the empire and further grandeur, glory, and majesty so that all peoples, nations, and languages trembled before him. Whoever Nebuchadnezzar declared to be killed was killed, and whoever he spoke of as set aside to live, they lived. They were spared. But when Belshazzar's grandfather lifted up his heart and his spirit and became so proud and arrogant, then God Most High removed Nebuchadnezzar from the throne to live with the wild donkeys and eat grass. Finally, the king recognized God Most High as sovereign over the realm of mankind and that the same God sets whoever he chooses over mankind. Verse 22 and 23 reveal Belshazzar for the man he is. Yet you, Daniel, excuse me, I'm sorry, yet you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all of this. And you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you praise the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel lays out the public sins of the king. Pride, arrogance, blasphemy of Yahweh, and rank idolatry. And then he delivers this stinging rebuke. Verses 25 to 28 is the interpretation of the writing on the wall. And and Daniel said, you know, that hand up there, that was sent from him, from from God Most High. And this inscription was written out. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, you farsen. 
This is the, and then Daniel continues. This is the interpretation of that message. Mene. So first, first he could read it. He could, he could parse it out. He could make, make the sense of the words. And those words all mean something. They're not, it's not gibberish. It's, it means something in Aramaic. Okay? And the interpretation of the message is this. Mene. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Takel. You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. You farsen. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, Daniel took those four words and pa- as passive participles in Aramaic. You, O king, have been numbered and numbered again. <clears throat> you have been weighed and found deficient. You, Farson, okay? Your kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and Persians that are outside the walls. And when that happens... <clears throat> there, it's not going to be a split down the middle of equal portions, but rather divided into bits and pieces, and your empire is destroyed. Now, true to his promise, Belshazzar ordered the royal robes to be hung on the shoulders of Daniel, and the gold-chained necklace to be put on him, and the proclamation that he was now to be the third highest ruler in the empire. You stop and say, wait, what's missing here? He read it, he interpreted it, but Belshazzar totally blew it off. Okay? He disregarded the interpretation of the writing on the wall. He continued to challenge Yahweh. He was going to trust in his idols and in the great fortress of Babylon. Daniel got to wear those robes and be third level ruler of the empire for a matter of minutes. Okay? Because. A hundred years later, two Greek historians tell the story that that same night, October 12th of 539 B.C., the night that Daniel saw the hand on the wall, his hand and the writing on the wall, he read it and he, and he interpreted it. That same night, Gobrias, one of Cyrus's generals, completed the ordered diversion of the Euphrates River out of the river channel and out into a marsh. The result was the river level dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped. And Medo-Persian warriors silently walked under the walls of Babylon. Uh, They went directly to the palace. There was no alarm given. And they fell upon the royal family and executed Belshazzar on sight. Now behind the drive of this General Gobrius was revenge. Belshazzar had murdered his son in a fit of furious rage and jealousy during a royal hunt. Not only was Belshazzar an assassin with aspirations to the throne, a blasphemer of God Most High, an idolater, he was a murderer out of spite. One of the historians, Xenophon, described him as, quote, the wicked king, unquote. It would be two years before Cyrus the Great would take final control over all the outlying provinces of the Babylonian Empire. I mean, it was vast, absolutely vast chunk of territory, and it took him two years to put down whatever little rebellions were left until he could come and ascend the throne. During that time, there's this guy named Darius the Mede. That's listed in verse 31. Well, Darius is uh, a term of honor. It's a title, okay? 
And this man served as vice regent, set up the rulership all over the Medo-Persian Empire until Cyrus finished up mopping up the empire and came and ascended to the throne. The silver shoulders and the chest of Nebuchadnezzar's dream had come to pass. So, Ford's family, again, the sovereignty of God is demonstrated. Here, we see how humans can go so far that God steps in to judge. And then there's the faithfulness and trustworthiness of the word of God. In Isaiah 21 and in Jeremiah 51, the Lord had prophesied that Babylon would fall. As inconceivable as that was. In the lifetime of our grandparents and parents, even ourselves, we have, are aware of that there have been despots who have killed millions of men, women, and children. Even our own nation has a damning toll against us of nearly 65 million aborted babies. Shame on us. We need to fall on our faces and ask for forgiveness. We may never have participated in any such thoughtless murder, but many in the body of Christ have. Know that God readily forgives when we ask for his mercy and forgiveness. There's still consequences. So drop any Belshazzar stuff, whether thought, word, or deed, and repent. Receive his mercy, his cleansing, and his forgiveness by the blood of Jesus. Turn away from the past and lift your eyes to heaven and cry out for our nation to do as well. Let's pray. Lord, we too have within us the Holy Spirit that filled up and informed Daniel. We too have been placed here for such a time as this. We may not know for what purpose yet, but you do. We open our hearts to you to be instructed and pointed to what you have for us in these days. Thank you for your sovereignty over us. In Jesus' name, amen.